but um, it wasn't quite the wild west. You know, people were conscientious, and you made sure the world was done correctly. Um, but it was a far cry from what we do today. Kiora, I'm Troy here as CEO, and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Today we're joined by Alan McClintock, who is an international welding technologist, inspector, Senior Auditor for the SFC and ISO 3834 Certification Schemes, as well as being a Senior Welding Engineer here at HERA. And uh, maybe maybe our, our, we, we can start with the earlier days, Alan, why welding? Why did you decide to choose this, um, what appears to be a, a difficult uh, career pathway? Well, thanks, Mikhail. Um, yes, well, I really became a welder. Uh, by chance. It wasn't really planned at the start that I'd be a welder. In fact, when I left school, uh, my career started with the Ministry of Works in New Zealand, which in those days was a large government department responsible for a lot of the uh, engineering work done in New Zealand, the civil works and mechanical works. And in those days, they did a lot of training and they had a, a drafting training school so the first part of my job, I went along to this drafting training school in Wellington. They would take batches of about 50 young people who wanted to be trained up as draftsmen in various disciplines. And they had quite a good little setup there. And the uh, candidates, or they were sometimes called cadets, would go along there and learn the basics of drafting uh, from various uh, senior draftsmen and engineers who worked at the Ministry of Works, and the course lasted six months. So you'd learn all about how to do drawings and pencils and different papers and all these sort of things. This being, of course, pre-computer days. We had no CAD systems in those days. It was all st still done manually. And after six months, uh, they would send you off to an office all over New Zealand. There were lots of offices. I went to the head office in Wellington. In those days, the head office in Wellington employed about uh, 1,400 people, I think, mainly engineers, technicians, and draftsmen of various sort. And I went into the power division of the Ministry of Works, which was concerned with mainly uh, hydroelectric schemes. They also did some work on uh, thermal plants. In those days, the new Plymouth power station was being designed, which was a designed initially as a coal-fired power station. So I went into the office there. There was about half a dozen engineers and about half a dozen draftsmen. And I was the junior and they uh, introduced me on how to, to do drawings for various things. The main sort of drawings were quite a lot of mechanical work, the mechanical plant associated with uh, particularly hydroelectric power schemes and things like gates and bulkheads, which uh, were sort of structural applications really. And they were the main things that we drew and learnt a bit about. We did some basic design. Most of the design, uh, of course, was done by the engineers, but a little bit of design was done by the draftsmen. So I was there for about another six months. I'd been then a, a trainee draftsman for about 18 months. 
and they offered me the chance to go out to one of their workshops. In those days, the department had four large workshops in the main centres in New Zealand, and they had a, a large workshop in Lower Hutt in Gracefield, and I had the chance to go out there to the structural shop, the welding shop, and learn on the job how these things actually looked that I was drawing all day. So that was a year's set up, initially as a year's um, workshop experience, which was great. So off I went into the welding shop in what was called the central plant zone. This workshop was quite a large workshop. It employed about 100 people. Uh, so it had a structural shop. It had what they called a tractor shop where they refurbished and repaired heavy plant, mainly earth moving equipment, which was used on the central North Island power schemes, which were still being constructed. It was getting towards the end of the major construction of those hydroelectric dams, but uh, there was still a lot of plant and it was maintained by the Ministry of Works. And we did a, a range of other work. We did quite a bit of uh, repair work, repair welding, uh, some structural work, and stuff like heating and venting work associated with uh, various government-owned buildings, schools and things around the Wellington area. The Ministry of Works did quite a bit of construction and maintenance for those type of government-owned buildings and facilities. So I went in and they uh, taught me the basics of welding. And um, after the year was up, I'd been in the workshop, the welding workshop for quite a bit of time then. And when it came time to go back to the drafting shop, I said, I think I'll stay here, thanks. <laughs> this is more interesting than a, than a drafting shop. You know, the drafting shop had old men, the drafting office had old men, you know, maybe 50 years old, which were like working with ancient relics as far as I was concerned. So anyway, they uh, there was plenty of opportunities. They said, oh, yes, you can stay here. So I became a welder fabricator um, in the workshop. And I started going to Polytechnic at Petoni in the evening, uh, where they offered courses in practical welding. And they also ran uh, theory courses for the New Zealand Institute of Welding uh, examinations, which were offered in those days because there was no welding apprenticeship as such in New Zealand for political reasons. You could be a fitter welder or a fitter boilermaker, but you couldn't be a pure welder. So I uh, studied for this New Zealand Institute of Welding, what they called an A-grade welder certificate. Which went every night, uh, uh, every week, one night a week to the Polytech. And at the end of the year, they gave you an exam. And if you're successful, I managed to pass and become an A-grade welder to the NCIW system. Uh, Alan, can uh, we can uh, we can we ask you some questions uh, in in the in the in the in in the, in the meantime? And how this A grade welder would relate to welder qualifications like ISO 30, uh, ISO 9606 or uh, 2984? It was considered then they they set it. They claimed at the level of an uh, a an advanced trade certificate, which was like a a level four or five type of qualification, maybe a bit more level right. five. Right. Would you get would you get a welder's ticket uh, at that time, probably for 7-Eleven type of ticket uh, at the end of this training? Yes, you had to have one to enter, actually. But I had one, uh, and most people had one from their work anyway. So it wasn't part of the course. The practical welding was not covered in that course you had to have a, a welder's qualification to enter the course. So the course was 
theory. It wasn't practical. Right, Ellen, so, and we're talking we're talking seventies, or we're talking forties, yes, we're talking eighties. What nineteen seventy one back then? Yeah. And uh, the guy who ran this at the Polytech, he was quite forward thinking and an active NZIW member. And he started then the, the next course for welding supervisor, which NZIW had a qualification for. So I went the next year and studied the welding supervisor syllabus. And at the end, I passed the exam and became an NZIW welding supervisor, which is the forerunner of our current AS NZS2214 qualification. I believe the NZIW qualification is still mentioned in 1554. That's I guess. Fade away when all us old men uh, eventually retire, but it has been recognised as a relevant of the 2214 qualification for many years and that standard. Right, Ellen, you can you completed you completed welding supervisor certificate, and uh, what did you do after that? Well, then um, my mother, who was a teacher at the time. Um, she was very encouraging, said, well, what are you going to do now? And of course, I had no clue. I was more interested in cars and things than a career, really. But anyway, she got me thinking a bit, as I should have. And there was a job advertised at Petonia Technical Institute for a welding teacher. So I went along there and uh, they offered me the job, which I took. What helped me a bit was uh, Polytech tutors, as they were called then, uh, were required to do just more than, say, uh, welding. And my drafting experience stood me in good stead because I was uh, able to teach technical drawing uh, at the basic level uh, without too much extra training. So at the Polytech, although the main area of teaching was welding and practical and theory, uh, I also taught uh, technical drawing and uh, some basic workshop calculations. And later on, I started teaching some of the early uh, NZCE qualifications in mechanics, which is now uh, National Certificate Level 6, I believe, or National Diploma Level 6 in engineering. So the first sort of level of uh, mechanics and maths I started teaching to uh, students at the Polytech. So I had quite a range of classes, which was great. And the great thing about Petonia Technical Institute was it was the National Centre for Teaching Apprentices and the Fitting and Welding Trades, but also tool making. And we also taught other apprentices who did a bit, who required a bit of welding training, like fitted turners and machinists, but also all the range of motor uh, uh, apprenticeships, like we taught motorcycle mechanics, heavy diesel mechanics and motor mechanics and plumbers. All these apprentices got a bit of welding, so it wasn't just teaching fitting fit welders all day. Uh, we got a good range of uh, different trades through the training workshops, and that was very useful in gaining a bit of an understanding of what and how welding was used in trades, apart from the straight mechanical ones. So, Alan, I understand that your career also took you overseas. Can you can you tell us about your overseas experience yes, as a well, welder? Before I, I had an, before I joined the Polytech, I went to Sydney for an overseas experience. And like a lot of New Zealanders doing that, I didn't get much outside Sydney. I eventually spent some time in Brisbane. Uh, in those days, 
the first thing was the wages for a tradesman in, in Australia were significantly higher than they were in New Zealand. And there was plenty of jobs. You could pretty much work walking off the street and take your pick of jobs. Anyway, I settled into a place which did uh, mainly site welding in central Sydney. In those days, it was quite a construction boom. So we did structural steel buildings and a lot of uh, miscellaneous welding on reinforced concrete buildings, a lot of rebar welding. But uh, the experience on multi-level structural frames was very useful. Uh, they're nothing like you would see in New Zealand these days because they weren't too much too worried about uh, earthquakes. In fact, I don't think they had much seismic design at all. And but the, the welding was still very interesting. It was quite heavy stuff, maybe up to 100 millimeter flanges on some of these box sections and columns. So uh, we used mainly manual metal arc welding and self-shielded uh, flux cord welding. What was Alan, What was the welding standard of the day back then? What was the what was the welder welder's qualification standard? Uh, what was the welding standard in terms of the quality of the welds? Well, uh, the structural the, steel. To get a job in those days, you needed a to be a member of the union, and the union gave you a, a qualification like for welding. They had welder class one and welder class two. And the union would look at your qualifications and I showed them my A grade welder certificate, which uh, fortunately they said, oh, you're a class one welder in Australia. So, you know, I had a union ticket saying I was a class one welder. It means 6, 6G welder, what? Alan, what does it mean six, in terms of in terms of what you could weld at that time? You could weld anything oh. and, and in any, 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 any position? Yeah, anything in any position. Of course, a lot of it was what we'd call mild steel these days. And as I said, the seismic considerations were pretty minimal, if at all. So the standard welding was basically controlled by the welder and the welding foreman or supervisor. And sometimes engineers, design engineers and project engineers would come along and you may have to do a practical test for one job. But that was the exception rather than the rule. You know, you were trusted to know what you were doing when you went on site, you would explain to them what you were doing and what size of welds and so on you, you were doing according to the drawings. But that was about it. There was some basic inspection by building inspectors, but these guys were really carpenters you know, and builders. They didn't know too much about welding, a lot of them. But most of the work was done by tradesmen. And I think uh, the standard of welding was OK for the time. Um, but yeah, the inspection was reasonably minimal. And as long as the, the builder or the build, the guy on site looked at the drawings and the welds were what the size the uh, designer had put on the drawings and they looked okay, that was pretty much it. But um, it wasn't quite the wild west, you know, people were conscientious and you made sure the weld was done correctly. Um, but it was a far cry from what we do today, that's for sure. Ellen, coming coming back to New Zealand from Australia, did you find uh, similar conditions on site? Uh, I understand there were not too many steel frame building at that time in New Zealand uh, coming up. But no, what but what what that welding welding looked like in New Zealand back then in terms of the welder qualifications, uh, also inspection requirements and responsibilities around QA. Well, the basic requirement was the welder was qualified in the process and positions 
your welding and this was the old New Zealand standard uh, 4711 uh, pretty much 10 and 12 millimeter plate was the test thickness um, but on the job New Zealand the Ministry of Works had a, uh, a department of inspectors they, I think they were called steel structures inspectors so they inspected welding also paint systems and bolting and things like that. So they, these guys had come up through the trades and generally they were quite competent and knowledgeable. So they did the inspection of the work that we had done and that we would do in the workshop or on site for the Ministry of Works. And the standard again was, was pretty good. Um, there was not much radiography used uh, and ultrasonics. We never saw anybody doing any ultrasonics in those days. But there was quite a good standard of visual inspection. So they would measure welds and pull you up if they felt there was undercut that shouldn't be there. But there wasn't too much reference to the standard. There was a standard that had been established back then. I think it was New Zealand Standard 4701. And that had set out the standards for visual inspection of welds. Uh, they did require some radiography, which was a bit over the top uh, for the kind of work a lot of people did. But at least there was some inspection for government-funded uh, work. They kept an eye on the standard pretty well, so the, this, the standard was reasonably closely controlled in those days. I had a visit to the um, Auckland Harbour Bridge when the first repairs were being done, and that had a, a pretty good level of QA. You know, the engineers, the design engineers, the structural engineers were closely involved. They had uh, constant involvement of inspectors to make sure the work was up to their standard. So even back then, the the level of quality control and quality assurance was quite adequate, I, I feel, for, for, for the work being done. You, you certainly couldn't get away with things. Uh, it was a bit different from what was today, but the, the welding was certainly controlled on, on more critical work like that. So when you're coming back to New Zealand, you work at the at the Patoni Polytech, and then you decide to move to Hira. Can you can you uh, explain how 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 did you make this decision to uh, to make the next move? Well, there was a bit of a change in the apprenticeship system. The social fabric of New Zealand had changed. For the first time, there was quite a, a significant number of unemployed people, particularly younger people, and the government, I guess, quite rightly decided to uh, maybe check or reassess where the resources were going for, for funding, and they saw the need to get these people who had no job into some kind of training. So for the first time in the politics, we started to see unemployed young people coming along for training. Um, the problem with these people were, it was fairly obvious uh, why they were unemployed. They weren't interested in work and in fact, they weren't interested in much. So teaching them was much more of a challenge than an apprentice. Apprentices were pretty universally well motivated, well disciplined. They were no trouble, a, a pleasure to teach generally. But the, these other guys were, were not really, they were very hard work. Some uh, responded very well but not all. And uh, then I uh, I came across the uh, job vacancy for HERA and I thought, oh, that would be, you know, I've been a tutor then maybe 11, 12 years. And I thought, oh, that might be quite a good uh, change, uh, sort of a career progression. 
I had come across here. I've actually been to a HERA seminar run by the first director then, Gavin Fletcher. And uh, I was impressed with what they did and how they presented themselves. So it seemed a good place to come and apply for a job. And I was successful. So I'd been living in Wellington up to then. Of course, HERA, Hera is based in Manukau, so I had to move up to Auckland. But that's how I came. It wasn't that I was sick of being a, a tutor or anything, but the opportunity came and it was, uh, I think it's fair to say, a bit of a step up in the level of engineering I'd been involved with, welding engineering, from what we, we did in the polytech, simply because uh, of the nature of the work and the kind of researchers that HERA had. So, Alan, we understand it was an early day for HERA and also for welding centre at HERA. Uh, can you uh, can you uh, uh, talk a little bit about those early early activities uh, you undertook at the welding center uh, in terms of research and training and how you build up the center? Yes, well, Wolfgang Schultz recruited me. Wolfgang was the manager. He'd been there a year, a year and a half to establish the welding center. And Peter Haywood was there, of course. In those days, Peter worked out of here but for CBIT. But there was a very close relationship and, uh, you know, he would sit in the office next to me and then the next office was Wolfgang. So um, those two guys were, you know, very uh, dynamic uh, kind of engineers and they had some very interesting work. So it was a, an easy move in terms of, you know, the, the kind of work I was getting was great. Uh, and I think it's probably fair to say the government funding was a bit easy to get for research projects in those days. But we did some, under Wolfgang, some very interesting uh, work, research. It involved quite a bit of applied research, so there was quite a bit of practical work in there. And we looked at things like structural welding with MIGMAG welding and flux cord. And uh, in subsequent years, we did quite a bit of work on stainless steel, particularly stainless to improve the finish for dairy, food and dairy type applications, uh, where the idea was to reduce the amount of polishing required, which of course is a, a significant cost and any way that the fabrication could be improved to reduce the cost of polishing. Uh, was something which was well worthwhile. So we spent quite a bit of time on that. We did various welding processes. We spent a lot of time looking at plasma arc welding, which is very promising in that area. But we also did uh, aluminium, where we got good exposure to like some aspects of the marine industry, aluminium boats. And uh, heavy transport, of course, uses a lot of aluminium in the truck trailers. So we got to know some of the transport guys quite well and establish uh, a working relationship with uh, LTSA, Land Transport. Uh, we run seminars for the, their engineers. And so we got a good range of work, uh, a good mix of theory and practical, if you like. And I get very good exposure to people like Charles Clifton, who was the HERA senior structural engineer, and got uh, through working in the same organization as Charles and attending some of his seminars and gave me a real uh, appreciation of what structural engineers and designers do and how they see things. Charles was a great um, uh, person to be associated with. He helped us on our training courses and was very helpful for advice 
for a, a you know young welding engineer or a young welding technician on uh, ensuring that what we are saying and doing lined up with the way a, a professional engineer would see things. So that was great experience. Uh, uh, you have I'm, also you have also been involved in the development of the training resources, uh, specifically so so-called uh, welders training modules. They have been widely used at Politics for welders training. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit more about those resources you worked on? Well, in, in those days, the New Zealand Institute of Welding was quite active. Hera uh, had a close involvement with the Institute of Welding, and so we became active uh, in the Institute of Welding in the uh, education and examination activities of the Institute. So we started running courses Peter Hayward had already established uh, training courses for welding inspectors. So we ran what we called a certificate of welding engineering for professional engineers and engineering technicians. And our close, we were able to uh, maintain close contract, uh, contact with our, our friends in the education sector because all the polytechs who taught these subjects, they were members and active also in the Institute of Welding. So the natural thing was, how can we improve things? And we started working on a welding qualification system for New Zealand. And that was about the same time as the New Zealand Qualifications Authority was established in the early 90s. And uh, we were invited to participate in the uh, industry advisory groups, which were then designing the uh, qualifications framework based on unit standards. And the work we had done on uh, already on a training scheme for New Zealand fitted into that very well. Pretty strongly influenced by Wolfgang and his experience with the European system. Uh, uh, here, of course, had joined uh, the International Institute of Welding, so we could see what they were up to. And we were active in representing uh, IOW in New Zealand. So it all fell into place quite naturally. And our ideas of what uh, welding training could be uh, based on what we knew went on in Europe and so on, fitted quite nicely in with what, the way NZQA saw the qualifications framework. And so we were very active from the start. In fact, we wrote all the welding unit standards for practical welding and theoretical training uh, for what was then the engineering ITO, which later became competence. And we've continued to be active over the years in the revision and update of these unit standards and qualifications. So it was a bit of a natural role for HERA in that nobody else would do it anyway. The, the market, particularly for inspectors and welding supervisors, is quite small in New Zealand. So uh, we did run some courses over the years in conjunction with Polytechs, but the numbers don't really never justified a Polytech running the course by themselves. And, and uh, we uh, were, were able to work very well with them. We knew the people well, so that was also a good fit and a good uh, complement to HERA's other activities. Uh, well, Ellen, uh, we understand that uh, New Zealand Institute of Welding played quite a significant role in, in, in maintaining and developing those qualifications. Uh, now those qualifications are governed by HERA A and B, so-called uh, IAW authorized national body who looks after uh, quality systems around our training and our examination. 
what did happen uh, happen to uh, New Zealand Institute of Welding? Why why it uh, closed the doors? Well, it was its its problems, I guess, were similar with other organisations, which were probably in New Zealand mainly established after the Second World War. Uh, people were very keen to grow that kind of voluntary professional association. And because welding was not recognised as a trade in New Zealand, there were still plenty of people interested enough to get the institute up and running and maintain it for many years. Uh, it was all voluntary, of course. Uh, there were some costs involved, but it was pretty much run on a cost-neutral basis. Um, and it had a range of people involved, particularly those in the welding supply industry. In those days, so, you know, two big players, really. There was New Zealand Industrial Gases and Wellwell, and they were very supportive of the Institute. And so all their technical representatives were active. And so that was a great link to the supply industry. And the Polytechs and the other trainers were also very actively involved. So it was a good mix of people involved, and they would run a, a national a conference every year, uh, like other organisations. So it worked very well. Uh, what started to change is when the major supply companies started having to compete with other suppliers, uh, retailers, welding equipment, but also generally the nature of the way the world was changed a bit in the 19, late 1970s, 80s and into the 90s, where once people would be quite happy to go out on a cold winter's night to a professional organisation to hear a talk about gas welding or whatever, you know, people had TVs and warm houses that come up harder and harder to get people out. And also, I think it's fair to say some of the support from their employers started to fade a bit, you know, more companies would do in-house training maybe from their own international experts. Uh, so various factors like that played a role in generally that people were not that keen to do those sort of things on their own time and on a voluntary basis. So naturally, some of those functions uh, here took up through the welding centre. And it's fair to say that a lot of the original work done by NZIW has uh, positively affected what we do in the welding centre over the years. So it was a bit of a natural progression from what was voluntary done uh, after hours to more and more people would do it as part of their professional duties during office hours, if you like. So um, we still uh, have some connection to the old NZIW members, but it's much more on, a, on the, the fact that they are HERA members or SCNZ members, and we see them more you know, during the day uh, the days of the evening meeting have pretty much gone completely. But that, that was a challenge for many other similar organisations. Some have managed to survive, but a lot of them, to be honest, uh, it's just the way the world has gone. There's not so much of a place for that kind of organisation anymore. Yes, Alan, this is, it is an important point uh, of, of natural progression. Uh, do you see uh, current here uh, a training offer like uh, welding supervisor course or here a welding inspector level one and level two courses uh, as a natural progression from what you guys did in the past. So how does oh, it fit in the in the overall picture? 
Yes, I think it has been a natural progression. It hasn't been, there's been no traumatic changes where we had to completely change what we were doing. Uh, we still continue to have uh, very good support from our industry. People are interested in these sort of courses. They see the value of them. And the kind of people who come on the course are much the same as they would have when it was just available at the local Polytech by the NZIW. So in that respect, not much has changed. Uh, it still lines up nicely with the trade training offered by people like Competence and so on. People progress from that training into our courses like inspection and uh, supervisors. So uh, the, we see the support continues on a, on a, on a good strong basis. There's um, uh, been no real drop off. So uh, yeah, it's been a it's a natural progression, and uh, it's we do have the benefit of the people. Everyone who is involved will, as you know, tell us pretty quickly if they think we're getting off track or doing something irrelevant. So it's an industry where people will let you know pretty quickly whether they think what you're offering is of any value or not, and that's that's the way it should be. It needs to be transparent. We have to be answerable to these people, and uh, I think we've managed that reasonably well. Uh, Ellen, you've all, all, also been right at the beginning of of ISA 3834 system here in New Zealand. As we started establishing the system and working on all the quality systems and documentations around it and training. So if you look back to your early experience with welding and look at what has been achieved here, especially by HERA and having such a large number of companies now certified to the requirements of ISO 3834 and also SFC. So what is the difference? Uh, is it a big change for the industry? No, I, I don't think so. I first came, heard of you know this stuff way back in the 90s when uh, ISO 9000 series was being promoted as you know, everybody, this is what you have to be doing. I mean, it made sense. Some in the industries, uh, their eyes opened a bit, you know, do we have to write all this down? So uh, a lot of people, including in New Zealand, their first introduction was through the, the ISO 9000 series. Um, it didn't really suit a lot of what we do. And so 3834, the ISO standards, the series of them, of course, uh, is a much better fit. And I often tell people, you know, if you're doing things properly, you're probably doing a lot of this already. You may have to do a bit more documentation. And I think that's the way most people see it. Certainly the amount of paperwork has in increased, sometimes to the point where probably we would think too much. Um, but if it's properly managed and it's treated as a living system, uh, the benefits are undoubtable, as our SFC scheme has has taught us. And the uh, the reason, as you know, we are reassured about this is that our fabricators tell us they find it very useful, and and it's accepted as the way to ensure that they are doing things properly, and of course, uh, hopefully, making a useful amount of money out of the industry. So um, there's no doubt that. It's a bit of a, an eye-opener for people who have not worked to any sort of formal system before, but have, have the basics of what you might loosely call quality management in their welding op and fabrication operation anyway. It's generally not such a big 
shift. It's certainly a bit more work, a bit of a different change in emphasis as to what might have been done in the past, but properly managed. And as long as it's treated as a living system where the fabricator adapts and modifies the system to what they're doing, I think we can be very pleased about what that system has done for our industry. And uh, certainly on my experiences, the feedback is pretty much universally positive for those who use it properly, which is most people. Yes, Alan, you, you touched on quite a few things uh, that would make up a rounded up welding engineer. This is the practical experience. This is training, uh, working with standards uh, and working, working, working directly with industry also in relation to certification. You are you are in high demand for technical consulting, Alan, specifically for so-called hotline enge engineering and free advice. Uh, did you enjoy this kind of activities? Because you may get a call uh, next minute and you, you would face uh, with a bit of a challenging question. And the, the questions most of the time are related to compliance, about resolving some technical issues or technical problems. Uh, did you enjoy it? And what was what was what was the range of, of the questions you 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 like the most or you or you, you dislike the most? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly, yeah, it's uh, the variety and the type of questions is always uh, a bit of a challenge, but it's very enjoyable if you can help somebody uh, solve a problem related to welding or, fa or fabrication. The range of inquiries has been quite broad. We get some, I mean, we had a, an inquiry about a woman who's whose new hot water cylinder, the braised joints had failed. So we get, we've had a few questions like that over the years. Somebody whose garden gate or garden fence they'd paid a fabricator to make fell apart, right through to questions where we need the assistance of uh, design and structural engineers. It, it's more than just a welding question, it's a welding, welding engineering and uh, a question. So these uh, can be quite challenging. But it, it's certainly an enjoyable aspect of the job, being able to uh, help people solve these problems. Uh, it's a good, and introduced as a good bit of self-discipline for the welding engineer. You know, you have to read the specs and the standards very carefully to make sure you're actually uh, giving the right advice. Uh, but it's very satisfying if you get it right and you're actually to, able to make a bit of a difference to, uh, to some job. And uh, that's certainly one of the highlights, really, of my work at HERA is getting uh, people getting in touch with you and you learn about their problems and what they're doing. It's quite often uh, a very valuable experience to talk to these people who are doing this on a daily basis and come up across come across a, a problem where we can help. So we've had a very wide range across all the industries which use welding. A wide range of questions have been asked and generally we can help, not always. Uh, sometimes we've gone to overseas contacts to get some advice on these things, uh, but it's all a great learning experience for, for someone like myself. Uh, Alan, uh, technology is changing fast and also the ways of delivery of training courses is changing. What do you think about online training, so-called distance learning, which is also increasingly used by us at HERA? Well, yes, COVID, of course, has forced us on it, really, hasn't it? Yes. Um, so we've learnt a lot on the online training we have done. It has a lot of potential, particularly in terms of saving cost and time for people in a, 
a country like New Zealand where they're not all in the living in the area where they can get into a classroom. So I think we've been reasonably successful with it. We're still learning, of course. I think the face-to-face, -face, the classroom situation, or on the shop floor talking to people or whatever, that's still a great way of doing it. And we know a lot of people enjoy being able to put aside their, their work for a day or two or a week and come along full-time and hopefully learn things. Because the interaction with people, being able to ask questions on the spot as they spring into your head, this is a, a, a method of learning we know people really enjoy. Um, and it's surprising uh, what questions you get asked in a classroom and you see it's like, uh, if you get the right answer, uh, it's like turning a light bulb on. The, the, the person would say, oh, I always wondered why we had to do that. I always wondered why that was the case. And some of those questions will not always spring up in an online situation. So uh, we have to accept that the online system is here to stay. Uh, but I like to think that the classroom will continue to be offered as an alternative uh, because we've certainly got some very good feedback from people who've come on, on that course. The, the disadvantage, of course, is you may have to travel out of town. There's associated costs. You're not in your workshop for a week or whatever. So there are some limitations or disadvantages of it. But I think um, and what we're looking at in the future is maybe the bulk of the work may be being done online, backed up by maybe a day or two in a workshop or a lab where we can actually touch bits of metal and show people actual uh, samples or job samples. That also, that, that I think, uh, if it will work for most courses, is an interesting way of combining the benefits of both delivery systems. Oh, thanks, Alan. Uh, we have been on the uh, almost uh, for an hour. Uh, we may keep some of the questions for our next podcast, I guess. And uh, uh, for someone who would like to uh, uh, listen to Alan again, uh, we have a range of courses coming up. We are welding a supervisor course, which is online and face-to-face. -face. You're welcome to register, and some of the lectures will be delivered by Alan. Alan is in high demand on this course. And we will also have a range of uh, range of uh, other training courses like inspection for welders and uh, uh, what every engineer should know, quite popular webinar series where Ellen also presents a range of training courses. Uh, thanks, Ellen, for your time. And we will see you again soon.